Well, as we return to our study of book one of the Psalter, we return to the same old problem, enemies. Throughout this collection of Psalms, conflict has been a constant. David seems always on the run, always haggard by hostile men, always in a tight spot. And with Psalm 27, it's the same story, different psalm. However, what we see in this psalm is the prophet, the Lord works in the soul in our trouble. Samuel Rutherford, that great 17th century Scottish preacher and Westminster divine, when also facing enemies, he once said this, I find it most true that the greatest temptation outside of hell is to live without temptations. If water stands, it rots. Faith is better for the sharp winter storm in its face and grace withers without adversity. What a beautiful thing to say. And he's really on to something profound that is frequently missed by believers. And it's this, the Lord brings trouble and uses trouble to focus our eyes on Him, on our need of Him, and the longing that we should have for communion with Him. Growth for the godly isn't the sudden provision of ease. Growth happens as tribulation sharpens our love. And David gets that. David's difficulties draw out his deepest desires and he casts himself on the Lord, yearning for the enveloping presence of God to hide him. In the midst of David's struggle, the Lord is, as it were, teaching David to look up to a better day, a day of beauty and safety and communion. And David ultimately, through his desperation, seeks the presence of God in his hardship. We're going to see four things as we make our way through the psalm. And we begin with exhorting self. Now, our first two points, each of them could be a sermon on their own. They're going to require a little more of our time as we make our way through. So don't get nervous when I get to point three and you're like, we should be done ten minutes ago. Verses 1-3, to exhorting self. We've seen repeatedly that one thing David does in his distress is preach to himself. He knows God. He knows His character and His ways. And more importantly, he uses what he knows. The believer takes himself by the lapels, as it were, and exhorts himself in the truth. And here David tells himself again who the Lord is to comfort his heart in anxiety. In verse 1, David gives three metaphors concerning the Lord, the covenant God Yahweh, and how God fortifies the soul against fear. He says first, the Lord is my light. Now, light, as one has put it, is a natural figure for almost everything that is positive, from truth and goodness to joy and vitality. When darkness descends, light drives it out. Well, in this case, the darkness is fear. Darkness is a threat. We don't know what to do and where to go and how to see, but when the threat comes, the Lord Himself as the light dispels the cloud. Psalm 23 comes to mind. Even though I walk through the valley of, we often know it as the shadow of death. It could be translated the valley of deep 
darkness. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God's presence, His face shining upon us, His Word to be a lamp for our feet, His Spirit enveloping us with protection, that secures our soul in any conflict. And David recognizes here that Yahweh, my covenant God, and note the personal language, Yahweh is my light. He, the Lord, can't be overcome. He's the supreme power. He's the undefeatable God. No darkness, however ominous, can dethrone the Lord. And if He's mine, or better, if I am His, my soul is safe. Darkness, whether that be moral evil or menacing enemies, are sent packing when the Lord comes near. And then David gives us a second metaphor. Not only is Yahweh my light, He's my salvation. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God is in relationship with me and He's my deliverer, my Savior. If He's on my side, who could prevail over me? Now, the language from an Old Testament perspective recalls Israel certainly standing on the banks of the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his army bearing down. And when Israel did nothing but panic, what did the Lord do? He saved. He made a path through the waters and brought those waters down on Pharaoh and his army, crushing them. Thus, the helpless, vulnerable children of God were rescued. And Moses then sang in celebration. The Lord is my strength and my song. And get this line, He has become my salvation. That's what David sang. David wasn't there at the Exodus. But the Lord hasn't changed. And David has seen Exodus life experiences in his own life. He's seen Goliath fall. He's seen numerous Philistines be put to flight. He's seen Saul's men who surround him multiple times driven away and yet David is saved. The Lord has proven to be David's Savior. And if the great covenant God surrounds me with His salvation, then nothing can pluck me from His hand. And doesn't that remain true for us? You know what Paul's going to say in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? The devil can come at us with all the powers of hell, aiming to do his worst and still nothing, no force in all creation can separate us from God's covenant love in Jesus Christ. If we're in Christ, our sins are gone, the curse is crushed, the devil is overcome, and life is eternal. We are safe. And if this is true, though David yet hasn't been given the fullness of that picture, he's looking this from an old covenant perspective, he's just looking forward to the greater exodus, but still he recognizes If Yahweh shines on me and saves me, whom shall I fear? Brethren, are we cultivating this perspective? Do we look upon our God in the face of our trouble and know we're secure? And do we understand the exhortation David is giving himself? He is afraid, but he's preaching to his soul. He's telling himself, look at God, see who he is. The vilest adversary can't breach his steadfast love. But then for good measure, David gives a third metaphor. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, a stronghold is a place of safety, maybe a high place or a strong tower, some type of impregnable 
fortress. That's what Yahweh is to the believer. The Lord is my preserver. He keeps me, guides me, He walls me around with His power. Or as David put it in Psalm 3, Yahweh is a shield round about me. Wouldn't you like to have a shield like that that wraps all the way around? Well, we do, and it's the Lord. No place is vulnerable if I'm under the canopy of God's protection. And with that truth, David is beating back his fear. You see what he's doing? He's telling himself that fear is illogical when I'm personally attached to the omnipotent God. And brethren, we know that sound reasoning, but how often do we forget? How often are we filled with fear? How often do we take our eyes off the Lord and look at the wind and waves of trouble and start to sink? David is exhorting his soul, behold your God. See His power. See His love. See His personal attentiveness to His people. Rest in Him. And then drive out your fear. And that's what David does as he considers the trouble. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, what a horrible picture that is of the intent of the wicked. They want to devour like a bunch of wild dogs. But when they advance against me in their collected masses, verse 2, it is they, my adversaries and foes, who stumble, or literally, it is they who have stumbled and fell. David seems to be here recalling specific instances in the past when he's seen enemies fall. When the Lord has crushed a foe, the malice of these murderous hordes has come to nothing because God has frustrated them and crushed them. He's shown Himself faithful. Now, we tonight may not have personally seen murderous men coming against us and then struck down. But we have seen through the Scriptures hordes of evil men attacking the greater David and failing. Do you remember how there was a preview of that in the garden? The guards approached Jesus to arrest Him. He asked them, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. In John's recollection, He just said, I, I am the divine name. And what happened? They all fell down. It was an indication of His ultimate power. But then He submitted to go with them. That He would suffer to redeem us. They then beat Jesus, mocked Jesus, crucified Jesus. They buried His body. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And what became of those wicked people who didn't repent? Well, ultimately, God made them fall. Many, as Jesus warned, were destroyed when Rome sacked Jerusalem when the temple was burned and the slaughter was great. The point is, we have seen Satan with his whole arsenal coming to attack and then fail. That's how it goes when evil men strike. And knowing this is how God works, David preaches again. Verse 3, he's telling himself, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I shall be confident. Now, the confidence that David has is not in his battle prowess, though none of us would probably want to fight David. He doesn't trust in himself. The confidence is in the Lord. Well, brethren, do we have that kind of confidence? Do we tell ourselves, get your eyes on Jesus. 
because of who He is, our light, our Savior, our place of refuge. The devil can use the best bag of tricks he's got. He can accuse us. He can beat us. He can, he can threaten us. He can lock us up in jail. He can even have us put to death. But what he can never do, even when the ugliness of death threatens, is drag us down to hell. We can stare at the cold, dark tomb and say, I am not afraid. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Brethren, believe. And may God help our unbelief. But then see with me, secondly, nearness sought. Verses 4 to 6. Thinking of the safety the Lord gives, it stirs David now to consider his greatest longing. So often the thing that we want the most in our trouble is just to stop having trouble. But David has something greater in his heart, something that commands his attention. The one thing he wants is nearness to the Lord. You see it in verse 4. This really deserves even way more attention than I'm going to give it. Listen to how amazing this verse is. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, I don't think David is saying literally, I want to live in the earthly tabernacle. David is not an Old Testament priest. That's not an option open to him. But what he is indicating is a desire to be near to God, to get as close as he possibly can. Though David could only come into the outer court, he craves communion. Friends, is that the thing that we crave above all else? When trouble surrounds us, we can crave, and often do crave, lesser things. Maybe we just crave a diversion, an escape, a vacation, a little bit of temporal ease. It's so easy to get caught up in our trouble with just passing pleasures. That's not David's desire. He wants nearness to the Lord now and forever. He has a preoccupation or a passion to be close to God and to consider all that he is to the believer. He wants to be captivated with the Lord. Now, interestingly, at this point in David's life, if we can date it, it's hard to date it, but the ark in David's life ultimately and the tabernacle are going to be separated. You, you remember David will eventually bring the ark to Jerusalem desiring to build the temple. He's told he's not the one to build it, but the tabernacle remains in a different spot. However, the thought of worship, of seeking the nearness of God and recognizing His presence is symbolized by the ark. That stirs David to express his chief desire, which is, verse 4, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What an interesting expression. And we have to ask ourselves, in what sense is the beauty of the Lord seen in His house, the tabernacle and its furniture, chiefly the ark? Well, if we consider what is communicated by the tabernacle and the ark, several things ought to jump out to us. First, the Lord is beautiful in His condescension. The ark is representing the throne of God in the midst of His people. So think of this. 
Here is the great and mighty God, the Maker of heaven and earth, who cannot be contained. And yet He stoops to dwell in a tent among His people. Some of you may have dogs, and they probably have crates. And you may love your dog, but you ain't going in the crate. And you're certainly not going to stay in the crate. But here's the Lord. He's high and holy, and He comes near to be in a tent with His people. And yet He comes to live with them, abide with them, revive them, comfort them, provide for them. That's beautiful. And how much more beautiful is it in the condescension scene when the Son of God, John chapter 1, takes flesh and, note the word, tabernacles among us. Oh, how lovely that our Savior would be willing to leave the riches of His glory to set aside His recognizable crown and to take flesh, poverty, take even our sins upon His shoulder to suffer and die for us. And why did He do it? That we might be with Him where He is. How beautiful is that? Jesus seeks communion with us. Well, do we seek it in return with Him? Do we see the loveliness of Christ the incomparable splendor of the King of glory who has humbled Himself and come close to us. Brethren, if He didn't do this, we would be lost. We can't know the Lord apart from His approach to us. We cannot escape our sin and the death that it warrants without Him stooping to save. Are you amazed? And do you want to look upon Him? I tell you, if you don't want communion with Him like this now, you will never want it. You won't want to go to heaven. For what will the future state be like? It will be seeing Him face to face, gazing upon His beauty. We will behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ and we will be captivated. But for David, there's more beauty to consider a second thing to think about, the Lord is beautiful in His revelation. The ark doesn't just communicate that God is present and He is a king. It communicates specifically that God speaks. Now, inside the ark, among other things, there were the ten words of the covenant, which we call the Ten Commandments. That God graciously reveals His will to us. And then over the lid of the ark, in between the cherubim on the cover of the ark, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 25, there I shall come to meet with you. In other words, the Lord hasn't left His people in silence. He directs them. He listens and responds to them in His Word. And that's beautiful. And as we consider the Lord, who is holy and transcendent, perfect in every way, He doesn't only stoop to get close to us, He actually talks to us as though we're in a relationship with Him. He brings us into His friendship, if I can dare put it that way. And He tells us of His character, of His providence, of His promises. He meets us in a world of darkness with His light to guide. Perhaps we don't appreciate this as we should, but David lives among pagans with their idols who do things like burn their children in the fire to manipulate the phony God, to telling us something, to try to get God, their God, to say something. 
Well, what a relief it is for us to have a speaking God. We don't have to, like the prophets of Baal, dance around for hours and cut ourselves and spill our blood to show that we're serious, to twist God's arm to say something to us. We don't have to pull it out of Him. The Lord tells us who He is and He tells us what pleases Him. Do we treasure that Word that He's given to us? Do we delight that the great God of heaven and earth would instruct us? There are things that are hidden to us. But the Lord has revealed stuff. And it belongs to us. We have His Word. That's beautiful. And then the last thing that's beautiful I'll point out is the beauty of reconciliation that's pictured here. God has given a means of approach for the sinner in the tent, the tabernacle. Now the moment you entered the tabernacle, that tent, it said something of death. Something had to die for you to come close to God. And once a year, the blood had to be sprinkled on the lid of the ark. But it was God who gave this sacrificial system because Yahweh is providing reconciliation. The covenant God is making it possible for the sinner to come close. David can only stand in the outer court. How much closer can we get? We can boldly approach the throne of grace. And the blood of Jesus brings us lasting redemption. That is beautiful. We have unceasing access to our God. God will never say to the believer, I'm tired of you coming in here and telling me your stuff. No, you're welcome. You have the right of sonship. Do you marvel at the beauty of that? That God has loved you and given Himself up for you and His Son. David sees this reconciling beauty and he wants to draw near to inquire of the Lord, to seek Him and worship Him, to ponder His greatness. And David seems to recognize as he worships the Lord, his sense of safety will grow. Verse 5, For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. He's saying with the Lord is absolute safety. Figuratively, this language of hiding me is like Rahab hiding the spies. You remember that story in Joshua chapter 2? Or figuratively, like a lion hiding its prey in its lair. The Lord is a lion. He's ferocious. And He's our protector. Now, David isn't saying when he acknowledges that God will hide me, that no bad thing happens in the life of a believer. Have you read David's life? But what he seems to be saying is with the Lord is ultimate safety. And the day will come when enemies are subdued. And I won't just be hidden, I'll be lifted high. Verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And in that day I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The time will come when all of David's enemies are defeated and there is only praise. David longs for it. Brethren, do we? Alright, we're going to pick up pace now. Number three. Desperate situation. Verses 7 to 12. Now in verses 1 to 6, David seems full of assurance and focused on worship. But then a shift occurs in verse 7. And it's such a striking change that some have argued this has to be a separate psalm. Like a cut and paste situation. Because David moves from these great creedal declarations of safety to urgent cries. Verses 7 to 12 are loaded with loud, staccato like supplications, a flood of pleas. There are ten requests 
in these verses. Hear me. Don't hide from me. Don't forsake me. And so forth. And you get the sense that while in verses 1-6, to David's eyes were full of the Lord, and in verses 7-12, to David's eyes are being overcome by the enemies. Desperation that he has is revealed in several ways. First, he asks to be heard. <clears throat> when I cry aloud. This isn't silent prayer. <clears throat> there are examples in the Bible of silent prayer. This is a crying aloud. This is a shout, an audible yearning for the Lord to hear and help. And then David speaks of being forsaken. Now, we don't know the circumstances, but his father and mother have forsaken him. Verse 10. <clears throat> we wondered, did they refuse to help? Did they join the chorus of criticism? Like in the days when Saul was king and people spoke ill of David? Or did they leave him in the sense that they died and they've already departed this world? We don't know. But having been left in whatever situation by his parents, David is desperate that the Lord not forsake him, not cast him off. And then he prays for guidance to be taught on a level path. Lead me on a level path, verse 11. But he prays for that steady help because of his enemies. Adversaries are hot on his trail. False witnesses are making his life complicated. They breathe out violence, verse 12. You get the sense that David is being hunted. Now in verses 1-3, to David said with faithful resolve, even if an enemy come against me, I won't fear. But then in verses 7 to 12, he seems to be afraid. What do we make of that? Well, frankly, I think it's really silly to act as if though this is a, a different psalm. I think this is just the rise and fall of our faith. Don't you see that in your own life? You have great confidence in the Lord one moment, and you are desperate the next. Sunday comes. The Word is read and preached and sung and prayed and you're lifted up and you're thinking rightly about your trouble and you can see things in view of eternity and then Monday comes and a slew of hardship hits you and by Wednesday, with stress after stress pushing you down, you're desperate, you're anxious, you're overwhelmed. Is anybody else? Is just as a personal testimony? Do you, do you know this? This is the fight of faith. But how does David engage in the fight? Well, he prays, and he doesn't just have a pat prayer, help me, Lord. He's fervent and loaded with petitions. Here, be gracious, answer, hide not your face, turn not your servant away in anger, cast me not, uh, forsake me not, and so forth. And then there's resolution in his soul. Verse 8, he recounts God's Word. You have said, literally, y'all seek my face. That means it's a command to all of God's people. And David applies it personally. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David's pursuing obedience. He's seeking the Lord in prayer. He's facing trouble by running to the Lord, by pursuing communion with the God who said, seek my face. And then during David's desperation, we do hear some confidence hanging around. Verse 9, David prays, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. And then he suddenly confesses, O oh, you who have been my help. He clings to the fact that God doesn't change. He's the helper of His people. God's steadfast love, brethren, doesn't come to us in fits and starts. It's unceasing. It meets you every morning. And if Yahweh has been my help, what does it assume for tomorrow? He will be my help. 
David believes that. Further, amid articulating the forsaking that his parents are doing, David makes another creedal-like statement when he prays that the Lord wouldn't do that. Verse 10, but the Lord will take me in. It's framed like a promise. He's praying that I wouldn't be cast off, but he seems to know he will never be cast off. God will gather me to himself. The Lord won't leave me out in the cold and forget about me. And that faithful remembrance won't just provide David with general help. David is confident it will come in the way of guidance. David doesn't know what to do as his enemies threaten, but he believes the Lord is merciful towards him and will willingly teach him. Friends, do you believe that about the Lord? That the Lord will show you what to do when trouble comes as you seek His face. Because it's the kind of God He is. When you're desperate, the Lord is easy to find. Well, we may have days where the world seems like it's crumbling all around us. Days when our sense of assurance is very small. But when that happens, we still have a God who hears, who helps, who holds us by the hand with His guidance. Finally, see with me. Confident stance. After the sudden turmoil of the ten requests in verses 7-12, to it seems a calmness returns to David and he makes a profession of faith. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What does he mean by the land of the living? Well, I think he means, while not specifying a particular day in his life, that he will see Yahweh deliver him in this life. It's true in the future there's a day coming when all enemies will be removed, but David seems to be expecting God's goodness in a specific way in this life. What would lead them to to expect that? Well, in this case, it's God's promises. And this may well give a setting to the psalm. You remember, David had been anointed by Samuel to be the king when he was a boy, and then he's thrust into the world of trouble in Saul's court. And as the wheels on the bus come off, as Saul grows increasingly hostile, God continues to speak through people to David to tell him, you will be the king. He speaks through Jonathan multiple times to David. He speaks through Abigail to tell David, you will be the king. He even speaks through Saul. When David spared his life, Saul said, and I quote, I know you shall surely be king. Now, as these words of promise are conveyed, Saul kept up the pursuit. But while David's faith waxes and wanes, here there is a moment of steady confidence. I will see the goodness of the Lord. And I think he means, I'll see God's promises come to pass. (coughs) I'll see vindication in exaltation. The days of my humiliation will give way to glory. <clears throat> Excuse me. Surely David's greater son could say the same thing. What kept Jesus moving forward? <clears throat> it was the promises of God. The Father will exalt the Son. And we know that our Father will exalt His Son and we're in Christ, what does it mean for us? It means the Father will exalt us too who trust in Him. So David David then turns from preaching to himself to preaching to the people. 
Brethren, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What will the Lord do for those who wait for Him? Another one of those things that deserves a sermon to itself. He will deliver us from shame, Psalm 25. He will bring us into the land, Psalm 37. He will redeem us from all of our troubles, Psalm 130. He will pour out blessing, Isaiah 30. He will renew our strength, Isaiah 40. He will give us His goodness, Lamentations 3. He will bring us the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5. He will send Jesus to usher in the fullness of redemption, 1 Thessalonians 1. Just a sampling of the promises. Let your heart take courage because God comes to help those who wait for Him. Your days of sorrow will soon pass into days of triumph. Trust God. He can take care of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, You are our light. You are our safety and our stronghold. And we rejoice in Your goodness. Would You help us to trust You and would You drive out our unbelief? Help us to see Your beauty and to worship You in splendor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.